This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. I am very excited about this episode because I get a chance to talk to a living legend. That is Captain Jerry Yellen, a 93-year-old World War II vet who flew the final combat mission in the Pacific Theater. Captain Yellen's final mission was nine days after Hiroshima on August 14th and six days after the bombing of Nagasaki. He took off from Iwo Jima to bomb Tokyo, but by the time he returned, the war was officially over. Now, Captain Yellen, who is a P-51 pilot, has all sorts of stories. In our interview, we don't just talk about the final mission. We talk about his upbringing, growing up as a Jewish kid in New Jersey who faced anti-Semitism, what it was like going through flight training in World War II when you didn't have flight simulators, you just had to memorize a control panel blindfolded, and then to practice takeoff and landing, you just took off and landed. He has a story about how he had to cheat on his eye exam because he didn't have 20-20 vision in order to become a fighter pilot and not a transport pilot. And failing that, argued his case in front of a full colonel when he was still a cadet. Then his experiences landing in Iwo Jima and flying combat missions over Tokyo starting from April 1945 and the events surrounding the war in the Pacific, specifically his 78th Fighter Squadron, and how during that final mission, his wingman, First Lieutenant Philip Schlamberg, wasn't able to survive to celebrate VJ Day. Of course, Jerry's story doesn't end at the end of the war. He talks about his battle to overcome PTSD decades afterwards, and how from the 1980s onwards, he was able to have personal encounters with Japan to actually take part in commemoration ceremonies of the firebombing of Tokyo, representing an airman of the U.S. Air Force, and actually being warmly received there, showing the reconciliation that had happened between America and Japan, and how he himself had come to view the Japanese differently from his time as a soldier, seeing them as the enemy, to them as fellow humans, and even come to have Japanese people in his extended family. 
Now, if you want to learn more about Captain Yellen, there's a book that just came out called The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II, which is available wherever books are sold. Please enjoy this interview with Captain Jerry Yellen. Captain Yellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate being here. I have a lot that I'd love to talk with you about your experiences during the war, before the war, after the war. Let's start with before. Could you tell me about your life before the Army Air Corps, where you grew up, and parts of your childhood that you think were the most important for making you the man that you became? Well, I was born in 1924. Uh, in 1929, when I was five years old, the Depression came. And it was very difficult for my father to make a living. So we moved every October because uh, you get three concession free months of rent. I went to five or six different grammar schools. I never had any real friends because I could never be in a place long enough. And then in 1937, we moved when I was a freshman in high school. We moved to Bond Street in Hillside, New Jersey. And um, I was in a Jewish family, uh, played baseball and basketball and football with the guys on the street. And then someone discovered uh, that I was Jewish because they saw me going into a synagogue. And three or four days later, my house was covered with swastikas from the German-American Bund in Irvington, New Jersey, the very next town from where I lived. And I was a persona non grata all through high school. And there weren't too many of us in, in Hillside High School. Uh, they um, had all kinds of clubs for the Christians, but uh, there were 25, 28 Jewish kids in the school. And we were sort of isolated. We did good things, but didn't mean too much. And then in 1939, 1940, when the Flying Tigers came into being, when the British with the Battle of Britain, uh, the Air Force guys, the guys who were flying fighter planes, like Chennault and Bader from England, who lost his legs and continued to fly, became my heroes. And on December 7th, 1941, I, I was working. I had graduated from high school in June of 1941 with a scholarship to college, but no money. So I postponed entrance to the spring semester 1942. And when I heard about Pearl Harbor, I made up my mind I was going to fly fighter planes against the Japanese. And I went to the armory in Newark, New Jersey, and took out the papers and them out. The guy asked me if I was smart. I said, why do I have to be smart? He says, well, you have to have two years of college or pass an equivalent mental exam in order to become an aviation cadet. Yeah, you have to have two years of college. I passed the mental exam flunked the physical. And the doctor told me to go home, eat a lot of carrots, stay in a dark room, don't read anything, come back in three days, and take the eye test again. And I went home. <laughs> My mother was on the draft board. I asked her if she would bring me the uh, eye chart, which she did. She brought me the eye chart, and I memorized it, and I passed the exam. <laughs> and I was inducted into the Army Air Corps in August of 1942 just uh, six months after my 18th birthday. At this time, when uh, before the U.S. entered World War II, did you have a good sense, okay, we're probably going to join the war at some point, so I want to get prepared to enter 
the service. Did, did you have, before the war was announced? Did you have an idea that you wanted to be a pilot? Uh, well, I I built model airplanes and I thought it'd be great to fly, but I never thought that I'd fly in the military. I never thought about war. I don't think my, most and most any of us did. We had a president Roosevelt who was very much involved with the battle with the British and giving them destroyers and manufacturing airplanes for them, but. Um, I never thought we'd go to war. I don't know what the government thought or what they were, what their plans were. But December seventh hit me hard, very hard. Uh, we were attacked by a foreign country, and I had to defend that, uh, and I did, along with 16 million other black men. Many of them were drafted, but you couldn't be drafted into the flying corps, the air corps. You had to volunteer for that. And I did that, and, and I, I flew with 16 young guys during the war. The youngest was 19 when he was killed. The oldest was 26. Huh. What was it about the Air Corps that interested you so much? Was it something about it that you, uh, about the nature well, of the, the service that attracted you? Well, the fighter pilot, uh, Rick Tobin and uh, Rick and Backer and Rene Foch and those guys from World War One were the, First fighter planes to go fly in, and the glamour of flying and the camaraderie, even between the enemies, um, was very uh, impressive. And I, I just felt that I had the ability to do that, and I wanted to do that, and I did do that. It was an incredible experience for me to serve my country in a time of war. And thank you for mentioning that part of your childhood of the anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish discrimination. Once you were in the Army Air Corps and you're within this tight unit, did that, did those types of differences you think were kind of melted away or receded due to the, you know, the common cause? Well, they didn't, they never melted away. Everybody knows about the black people or the Tuskegee Airmen who had to be three times as good as everybody else just to be even well, I graduated from flying school in August of 1943, and the last 28 guys in the alphabet were sent to the 78th Fighter Squadron in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Those, 27 of those guys roomed with other fighter pilots. But I, as a Jewish guy, was put in with Marvin Kern and Phil Yanofsky, two guys that ran the, the intelligence division. I wasn't quite good enough as a man, as a pilot. Uh, they didn't know, but as a man, I was a Jewish man. I was different. I mean, they didn't deal with that. They couldn't deal with that. And I had to be three times as good just to be even with everybody else. Hmm. What was that like during your training when you you thought to yourself, I really have to step it up. I have to go farther than others. Well, I didn't think about it when I was in training because there was no problems when I was in training. And I loved to fly. I was doing what I was intended to do. So I was in it. I was in the zone. Every time I got on to an airplane, I, I was the airplane. And it was a thrilling thing to solo on February 22nd, 1943 at uh, Thunderbird Field. And I'm going to be there in November, in November this year. It's the 100th anniversary of the founding of Thunderbird Field in Phoenix, Arizona which is now the Scottsdale Airport. 
and I'm going to be there speaking on the 100th anniversary because in 1917, in November, uh, that's where they trained uh, the guys who went into World War One. So I, I was doing my thing, and I was recognized for doing my thing when I became a mustache, a, uh, a bushmaster in the 78th Fighter Squadron. And uh, um, there was a lot of times when I needed a go-to wingman or a go-to pilot to do something. And most of those times, I was chosen to be that person. I was just in my element as a fighter pilot, loved every minute of it. What's the training like? Um, for the fighter pilot prior to America entering uh, the Pacific, well, it was in the Pacific theater at this point, but before you entered combat scenarios, what was the the actual fighter pilot training program like? You went through, through three different phases. You went into primary flying where you flew Orion open cockpit, low-winged airplane, or a Spearman biplane with uh, two people and two wings. And you flew them for 50 or 60 or 70 hours. And if you advanced, you went to basic training for another 60 or 70 hours in a Volsi vibrator. And then if you survived that, you went into single engine training, flying an AT-6 or multi-engine training, or if you're going to fly bombers or transport into a twin engine airplane. And I flew an AT-6 at Luke Field. It was an advancement from a 250-horsepower engine to a 450-horsepower engine to a 650-horsepower engine, all with an instructor. So the instructor showed you what to do. You did it. And in time, the instructor got out. And then they put you into a P-40, a fighter plane, which doesn't have a second seat behind you or in front of you. And they blindfold you, and you have to touch every <laughs> instrument and name what it does and touch every switch and every control. Blindfolded, and if you pass that test, they take the blindfold off and they say, go fly. And you take off in a fighter plane all by yourself. There's no simulator. There's no advanced flying um, in that kind of an airplane with another person. And you do it. You either do it or you don't do it. And you go up and you do some easy turns and then steep turns and then you do a roll and a loop and you figure you can fly this thing and now you have to think about landing it because <laughs> you've never practiced it. And it's just time or you don't do it. And um, it's an, an incredible experience. Today, I went from six months from soloing an airplane that I'd never flown before, never been in an airplane before, uh, to six months later I was flying fighter planes. And today it's three years for the same training, three years compared to six months. Of course, we're not really at war now, but the aircraft are different, much different. You need much more technical knowledge in order to learn how to fly to that. And they don't go through the three phases that we do. They go to a primary school where they fly a jet, and uh, then they go to simulators and fly planes. And uh, from what I understand, this period in the early 1940s, there's tremendously fast technological advancement in aviation. But from what that means, these planes don't have a long track record and there's a lot of danger. Was that true for you uh, during flight training? 
I never thought about the technology of flying. Uh, you're making me go back and think about <laughs> times then. The uh, progression was not as fast as it is today. They went from radial engine airplanes to inline engine airplanes, which were a lot more um, sensitive to the controls. P-47 was a big radial engine airplane. It wasn't responsive immediately to the controls uh, as, as the P-51 was. But we flew P-51s until the first jets came out, which was perfected, I think, by the Germans. And uh, then the, the P-80 came into being in 1946, late 1945. And then the progress has been greater because of the uh, computer technology, which they use now. But an airplane's an airplane. If you can fly one, you can fly any. Hmm. In December of last year, at the age of 92, I flew the new T-6, which is uh, a training plane at Laughlin Air Force Base, where the, the pilots fly with an instructor in, in a turbojet that has the same power, 1,400 horsepower, 1,300 horsepower as the P-40 had when I first flew that. So, you know... People are people, and machines are machines, and we can overcome anything and everything, and we do that. We, we really do that. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful process to go through. Uh, one of the things I really liked in your story was your determination to become a fighter pilot and not a transport pilot. And uh, you showed some of the same ingenuity uh, working around your eye exam, which parenthetically, I should mention, I also have 20-30 vision. So I'm going to try your trick uh, the next time I have to get my <laughs> license renewed. It's a, I don't know if all the eye charts are the same, but if they are, then I'm going to go for that. Um, so how well, You can fly airplanes today, Scott, with glasses. You okay. Or... You couldn't become a fighter pilot then, but you could fly with glasses if you were flying transports. I don't know about the bombers. Uh, but you, that was a restriction, which you managed to overcome. I, I really like this story. How did you overcome that hurdle? Well, I overcame the hurdle by memorizing the eye chart. So in August of 1943, I had 10 hours in a P-40. I had $250 chit to go to Goldwater's department store to get my uniforms, which I did. And then we had to take a final, final physical. And I flunked the eye test. I still had 20-30 vision, but they changed the eye chart. <clears throat> and the doctor said to me, Yellen, you've come so far. It was Dr. Lee. Was, I think it was a major. And uh, he said, you've come so far. I'm going to let you graduate your class, but you're going to fly transport planes. I said, I'm not a transport pilot, sir. I'm a fighter pilot. He said, you're going to fly any airplane that I, can, that I tell you you can fly, and you can't fly fighter planes. I said, well, who can change that? And he said, the Commandant of Cadets. <clears throat> How do you get to see the Commandant of Cadets? You go through a chain of command. What does that mean? Ask me first. <laughs> Sir, I want to see the Commandant of Cadets. So now I'm standing in front of a colonel, a full colonel. And he looks up. He says, what can I do, you, do for you, yelling? I said, Sir, I got 10 hours in a P-40, and I have 20, 30 vision in one eye, and they want to make me a transport pilot. But I've got 10 hours in a P-40. I'm a fighter pilot. I only want to fly fighters. And he said, in different terms, anybody that's got the guts to come to see me, you're a fighter pilot. And so I became a fighter pilot. I was assigned to a squadron overseas from graduation. So he mentioned that 
okay, so you have to, it's not just obviously about physicality, but there's, there's something beyond it. There's the, there's a willingness and commitment to it. And those words that he said to you, when you actually became a fighter pilot and you were fighting combat missions, what were experiences where you could see the truth of his words that you do have to have that kind of that gumption and that bravery in the moment to be able to do this successfully? And that's really something I'd like to commend you for, for speaking out about your experiences with PTSD, um, since it wasn't a diagnosable trait following World War II in the way it is now. Um, so I think your, your speaking out on this has really benefited a lot of soldiers coming back to and open up pathways for help. So, um, yeah, and I'll definitely want to, um, talk about your post-war experiences because there's, um, things are, what you've done is a, very valuable service uh, in its own way, along with your wartime service. Um, when you, I, Scott, I've never spoken on World War II veterans who was in combat that spoke about his experience. 
Well, I had a brother-in-law who was uh, in the MPs. He was, he was on Normandy Beach before the invasion. He was my brother-in-law. We never spoke about anything. I had cousins, 12 or 13 cousins, all in combat, battle and politics. I never spoke to them about it. The guys that I had friends spoke about the war, the guys who never were in combat. They spoke as if they were in combat, if they never saw combat. Hmm. And uh, it's a very difficult thing. I, even the guys that I met, I've been going to Iwo Jima since 2010, and one of my good buddies, a Marine, George, uh, passed away a couple of weeks ago. And we were together for four times on Iwo Jima for three or four days together. Never spoke about what we did. They spoke about hearing the P-51s taken off and the sound of the engines, but not about what they did, just about the things that surrounded us. We were surrounded by death on Iwo Jima, eight square miles of land, 28,000 bodies, waiting, you know, just rotting in the sound, in the, in the sun, and waiting for burial. Uh, 21,000 Japanese, nearly 7,000 Americans. And uh, the sounds you can replicate, the sights you can replicate, but you can never, ever replicate the smell. Hmm. Was this your first place that you saw action in the Pacific Theater, Iwo Jima? It was the only place. It was the only place I saw action. Hmm. We were supposed to go to Yap, but that was called off. And uh, we flew Island Defense from October 1943 when I joined the 78th Fighter Squadron until we left in December of 1944 for the invasion, the planned invasion of Iwo Jima, which hmm. took place on February 19, 1945, when 67,000 Marines landed on eight square miles of land. And when you arrived in uh can you tell me again the date that you arrived in iwo jima march 7th march 7th okay yeah two and a half weeks after when they had enough land to protect the landing strip right so this was uh one of the earliest dates that uh you could land on the island is that correct yes uh, yeah the first of our group landed on march 6th we went in on the second day and we had one airstrip maybe 100 P-51s on a third airstrip, and then as they got further along, there was a second airstrip and a third airstrip, and uh, when the Marines had enough land around them, uh, airplanes came in and flew off them. Hmm. This uh, period right here, March 1945, I think it's it's the 9th of March when Curtis LeMay, the general, inaugurates the firebombing of Tokyo program. And with your uh, 19 missions into Japan in from 1945, April onward, could you tell me about these missions? Yeah, well, I don't know what the date is. That Curtis LeMay came from Europe and was the made the commanding officer of the 20th Air Force, which were flying B-29s, daylight raids over Japan. And they were getting clobbered by the weather by anti-aircraft fire by Japanese fighter planes. And uh, it, it was a terrible, terrible time for the bombers. So he, in June of 1945, in 1945, initiated nighttime bombing. Hmm. On March 10th, 1945, 250,000 Japanese were killed in Tokyo on a bombing mission. 
and a million two hundred thousand were made homeless in Tokyo on that day. It was just a horrible, horrible bombing raid. I know about it because 65 years later, 60 years later, I was invited to be in Tokyo and speak on March 10 on the anniversary of that bombing raid. And uh, after June, there were no more escort missions. I don't remember the date, but in June, the daylight bombing had completely. But after June 1945, the daylight bombing mission of the B-29s over Japan stopped. First, mm -hmm. they made them take off at dusk, bomb early in the morning, and get back at dawn. And that's when, when the escort mission stopped, and we went up on spray mission after June of 1945. Hmm. <laughs> we, we carried eight rockets and had targets of opportunity on the ground, airfields and factories and shipping lanes and that kind of stuff, and we did that. Hmm. Over these months, um, was was there much of the Japanese wartime infrastructure left over, or was most of it taken out by this time? You know, that's a question I can't answer. I can tell you that Admiral Yamamoto, who did the planning of Pearl Harbor, was asked by Prince Kanoi, who was the foreign minister, before December 7th, after the planes were given, after the plans Yamamoto made, he, he was asked, what's going to happen to Japan after we attack America? And Yamamoto told him, for six months, we'll run free. Nothing will happen. We'll have our way. But then we will be fighting a war, defending our country until there's an invasion of Japan, and we will lose the war. And six months after Pearl Harbor, the Coral Battle of Coral Sea uh, in June of, of uh, 1943 took place, and that was the beginning of the end of Japan. Uh, we took, uh, we went to the Philippines in 1944. We invaded Iwo Jima, Japanese territory. We invaded Okinawa. And I went to a briefing that we were going to invade Japan in October, November 1945. And at that briefing, we were told there's going to be a million casualties, American casualties. And every young Japanese person at school, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, was taught how to make Molotov cocktails and create bombs that they were going to throw themselves underneath tanks, trucks, and kill Americans because we were the enemy. They were prepared to die for the emperor because the Japanese, Japan had never been invaded. We were going to invade them. And... Uh, we dropped two bombs, the atomic bomb, one on the 6th and one on the 9th of, uh, of, of August 1945. And we thought that saved our lives. That was true. We didn't invade. They capitulated surrender on August 14th. Unfortunately, they did it uh, three hours prior to our strafing mission starting. And uh, I was on that last mission, and we never heard the code word Utah, which would have meant the war was over. And one man was killed, and his name was Phil Schlomberg. He was a 19-year-old fighter pilot from Brooklyn, New York, and he was flying on my wing, from my wing. It was the last man killed in combat, World War August 14, 1945. For you as a fighter pilot, what was that like when you're part of 
an aerial assault where thousands of bombs have to be dropped on a city to cripple it. And then suddenly the atomic bomb, which nobody had knowledge of outside of classified military intelligence, manages to almost level a city with one drop. What was that like amongst you and the airmen when you heard the news of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, we, the war was over for us. No more huh. missions, nobody dying, nobody else dying. No more eight hours in an airplane, one over the ocean. Nobody bailing out over a submarine. And the war was over. We, we all felt very confident that we'd never have to fly another mission, that it was over. Um, so we were celebrating. The guys were, we were asked if we want to stay in or we want to go home. And, um, our maintenance guys went back, and you know there was just a different atmosphere on Iwo Jima. We were relieved; we didn't have to go fight anymore. That's what I find so interesting about your story of doing a combat mission after the bombing of Nagasaki, because I think when a lot of people hear that, they think, "Huh, why? Why would there be a combat mission?" So, what military objectives? still needed to be accomplished after the bombing of Nagasaki in order for you to be sent out on a mission? Well, we had to go after the airfield and the ships that were anchored somewhere. And as I remember it, uh, Nagoya was our target city. And we were scraping airfields near Nagoya, military airfield. And they were shooting back. Uh, they were being attacked and they were shooting back. Nobody knows what happened to Schlomberg. He just—he was on my wing when when we had 90 gallons of fuel left. Somebody in the squadron had 90 gallons. We all had to leave, and we did. We flew out to B-29 when I came out in the clear weather. So stormy weather, he was gone. Nobody heard anything. Nobody saw anything, and he was the last man gone. What would you comment? Nobody will ever know. I'd like to shift now to a part of your story. Once the war ends and you return back to the United States, you're able to move on with your life. And you uh, mentioned a little earlier in the interview about uh, dealing with the trauma of the war and uh, PTSD. Now, I have not served in the armed forces, so I'm admitting my ignorance here. But um, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what you said earlier that soldiers really don't talk they don't talk about their combat experiences, how horrifying those experiences are. I'm sorry, what was that? Were you taught the Ten Commandments when you were growing up? Not through public school, but through church, yeah. Well, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I think it's thou shalt not kill. Okay, be, you're uh, probably right. Okay, sure. <laughs> I no, think I'm you're not, right. I don't know if I'm right, but I learned that thou shalt not kill. Right. And war, you put a uniform on and you got a license to kill. And you go out and kill people. And that's what war is about. War is about killing other people. And then you come home and you deal with that. What was right and wrong? My, my mother used to say to me, or people used to say to me, if you get into trouble... You know, uh, I'm going to call a policeman. That was when I was young. When I got a little older, <laughs> my mother said, if you get into trouble, call a policeman. Well, I was told not to call a policeman. That was punishment to call a policeman. So what we learned when we're young is thou shalt not kill. 
And then you put a uniform on and you go out and you kill people. And you can't talk about that. Right. You've taken somebody's life. You've done it. Sometimes personally with a bayonet or a pistol up close or a rifle or a gun or an atomic bomb. You've done that. That's how you win wars. And we did that when we came here. And when the British came here, they killed all the Indians because the Indians weren't people. But we're all people. The ones who went to Australia killed the Aborigines. Aborigines. They were people, but they weren't looked upon as people. We're all the same in the eyes of nature. We're all human beings. We're all people. All of us. Hmm. And that we're not, we're not, we don't realize that. We're taught to believe what we're taught. And we're not what we're taught. We're all human beings. The sperm of any man can fertilize the egg of any woman in this world because we're all the same. We're all human beings. Was there a view amongst, uh, at least during World War II and after Pearl Harbor, I-, I think amongst a lot of soldiers to be able to separate in their mind, okay, the people below us, they're the enemy, so I'm not going to trouble myself with the whole moral questions about going on bombing raids? There was no such thing as a philosophical. Right. There was right. back on Pearl Harbor, and every newspaper, every radio commentator, every book, that was published in those days, written about, spoken about, where the Japanese were not human beings. Mm-hmm. They were monsters. Look what they did in China. Look what they did in Bataan. Look what they did in the Bataan Death March. Look what they did in, 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 to all the places that they invaded. They're not human beings. And I never, well, I watched the bombing and saw little fires become big fires and watched the bombing of Tokyo. It never occurred to me that we were killing human beings. They were not people. They were the enemy. They were Japanese. They weren't human beings. Uh, and which I found out later in life that they were probably more cultured and more respectful or um, more educated and, uh, than, uh, than we are in America today. The war, of course, isn't the end of the story for you and your encounters with Japan. Could you tell me about the first time you returned there uh, as a civilian? 1983, I was asked to go to Japan. By the, by the Bank of California or Wells Fargo Bank. And I said, no, I can't go. And I came home and I told my wife that I turned down an invitation to go to Japan. And she looked at me and very quietly said, Jerry, you never once asked me if I wanted to go to Japan. So in, in uh, October 1983, I went to Tokyo. And the last night that we were there, Colleen said to me, you know, Jer, Robert would love Japan. Robert was our fourth son. He was a senior at San Diego State University. So she said, why don't we give him a trip to Japan for graduation? And we did that. And he went to Japan when he graduated and didn't know what he wanted to do, want to do with the rest of his life. They thought about taking a year uh, to teach English in Japan. So he con- signed a contract in 1988 to go to Japan for one year. And now it's 2017, um, and he hasn't come back yet. He's still in Japan. He has a website, JapanesePottery.com. He's a very well-known collector and seller of Japanese ceramics in Japan and other parts of the world. So he's made a life for himself. I have three Japanese grandchildren, and I love them as much as I love my three American grandchildren. There's no difference. And also, what was it like meeting 
your son's future in-laws, your daughter-in-law's mother and father, when they found out that uh, you were a World War II combat veteran or not just that, an airman who was involved in aerial combat, what was their reaction? Well, their reaction was in the beginning was they wouldn't meet my son. Huh. And it took seven months for, for, uh, for them to have a meeting. And uh, the wedding took place a few months after that on March uh, 5th, 1988, two days shy of the day that I landed on Japanese soil. And uh, we met and had conversations through a translator. And he felt comfortable with me, and I felt comfortable with him, and the wedding took place. And then he and I, with the translator, went to a real con in Shimoda, Japan. I sat in a hot onsen, hot bath, for three hours talking back and forth. And when we were finished, he said in Japanese to the translator that he never knew that there were other people in the world that felt the same way about family, the same way about culture, the same way about education, about religion. And we bonded as family, even though I couldn't speak English and he couldn't speak, I couldn't speak Japanese and he couldn't speak enough English to have a conversation. So it was an incredible experience for both of us. And uh, he's gone now, but we shared for a number of years. Anytime I went to Japan, we shared our time together a month. And you uh, mentioned that you were in Japan during the, um, uh, it was an anniversary of, uh, which event was it you mentioned earlier? It uh, just slipped my mind. The March 10th, the March 10th, 1945 bombing of Japan. Right. This was the first night of the firebombing, which I think killed maybe approximately 100,000 in one night, which was... I thought 250,000. 250,000. Yeah, I'm sure you know better. Can you tell me about that experience when you, when you were there and um, visibly, obviously, as someone from the United States, what were your encounters like with the Japanese people there? Well, it was an over, overwhelming feeling of sadness for all the people that were killed in that bombing raid because now I had Japanese family and it was, you know, a tough time for me to be at a memorial for so many people. Um, I, I had to speak and I had to do things and I, it was hard. It was very hard. How have people reacted to you as a World War II veteran do they have you ever met someone who had enmity against you or do they understand that it wasn't anything personal it was wartime and i found something in the japanese all the japanese that i've met that is a wonderful trait and they accept all the natural disasters or anything that happens in their life that they cannot control they don't have anger about it. <clears throat> they have sadness, of course, if they lose people. But they're not complainers about anything. So the people that I've met in Japan after the war were very accepting. In 1983, when I was on the Ginza, um, <clears throat> little kids gave me the V for Victory sign. Um, their parents uh, spoke to me. We went out into the countryside. We met people. Every Somebody buy a cup of sake or buy you a meal, or come up and talk to you. They were very gracious about me. I don't know whether they knew I was an American or whether they knew, none of them knew that I had flown fighter planes against their country. Nobody knew that. 
They just knew that I was there as a tourist, and they treated me exceptionally well, as they treated everybody. That's just their way of life, completely. I'm sure there are many Japanese who will never talk to an American who fought, maybe who had a brother or somebody who died. Uh, just like the Americans, there are many Americans who won't buy a German car built today or Japanese products built today because of the deep hatred. So I've gotten over that. I, I don't have that feeling. I drive a Japanese Prius. I bought one <laughs> a Datsun 30 years ago because it was $500. And uh, I, I just look at people as people. We're all the same. Your experiences have given you a lot of perspective. And in recent years, you've advocated for the World War II generation. What do you see right now in America in the 21st century? There's a lot of division between different groups political divisions, racial divisions. In your experiences, what lessons do you think would be best for people today to understand to overcome a lot of these divisions? The biggest lesson that I have learned, Scott, that evil comes when people believe something strongly enough that they're willing to kill other people for what they believe. Prime example in 2017 is ISIS. They are not all Muslims that feel that way. There's a group, a fundamental group of Muslims who feel that. They're called ISIS. I forgot even what ISIS stands for. But there are a group of fundamental people who believe that Israel has to be a nation or else Jesus Christ, their Lord, can't come back to this earth. So they support Israel, but in their hearts, they really feel that they are not going to let the Jews of Israel live after Jesus comes back. They're going to kill them all. Blood is going to run through. That's evil. And that's what is the height of evil, killing other people for what you believe. So that's my feelings about everybody. I don't care who they are. They're willing to kill other people for what they believe to expand their beliefs, their evil. And uh, one other thing, Captain Yellen, the new book you have that recounts your experiences, The Last Fighter Pilot, there's, there's two meanings in that. One is that you flew the final combat mission in World War II. The second is the idea of being the uh, final veteran of World War II. Could you tell me about that? Well... The title is a very good title. It's about the last mission of World War II. Whether I'm the last fighter pilot is very questionable because there's so many fighter pilots alive today in America. And so I'm not the last fighter pilot. I'm the last fighter pilot from World War II who flew the last mission. And that's the truth of the matter. And that's what the book is about. It's a very good book. Uh, interesting stories. I happen to be the subject, which is a very humbling experience for me. Um, but I think the story itself is worth uh, people reading it, the book. Well, it's available now. Captain Yellen, I really appreciate you uh, taking this time to speak with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's my honor and my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Captain Jerry Yellen. 
Again, if you want to learn more, there's a book that just came out that recounts his experiences during and after the war called The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. You can do that by going to historyonthenet.com forward slash subscribe. Speaking of History on the Net, if you want to dive deeper, go to our site historyonthenet.com and there you'll find blog posts, book reviews, and all of our other podcast episodes. Plus, don't forget to rate and review this podcast so we can bring you the best daily history content possible. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. War has played a key role in the history of the United States. From the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform.